0: This is a message for those that work in manufacturing across the UK and Ireland. Do your engineering maintenance stores keep you awake at night? Are your engineers spending excessive time sourcing and finding the spare parts they need? Eric's on-site teams take responsibility for your indirect supply chain, including both your MRO procurement and inventory control. And, as the name suggests, we do this while being based on your site. For more information, visit www.erics.co.uk
1: forward slash e-m.
2: This episode of Engineering Matters is supported by The Optimistic Outlook.
3: The Optimistic Outlook is a great listen for fans of Engineering Matters. It is a podcast for anyone intrigued by innovation across sectors, whether you're in healthcare, infrastructure, energy or beyond. The show is hosted by Barbara Hampton, CEO of Siemens USA, and offers invaluable insights relevant and impactful for all industries.
2: I think what you're really going to like is that Barbara Hampton is not just a CEO, she's a thought leader in the corporate world. In the podcast, you often learn from her journey to the top of Siemens USA, getting invaluable lessons on leadership, decision-making, and navigating the complexities of the modern workplace.
3: Barbara brings a wealth of knowledge, not just about manufacturing, but about its ripple effects across all sectors. Her perspective illuminates how manufacturing innovations are setting the pace for changes in healthcare, infrastructure development, energy sustainability, and more.
2: Regardless of your industry, the optimistic outlook is a source of motivation and forward-thinking ideas. Barbara's expertise in connecting dots between manufacturing and other sectors reveals actionable strategies for innovation and leadership in any field.
3: We invite you to explore the optimistic outlook and join a broad audience that values transformative ideas, including us. Search for the optimistic outlook wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Could just parking your car at work help eliminate fossil fuels?
0: If we took the 30,000 car parks and converted just 10% of them to solar, we could take all the coal off the grid. All the existing or remaining coal power generation could be replaced by just 10% of the car parks. If we did 50%, we could get rid of gas and oil as well. So it is quite a staggering figure.
3: How can we count the carbon cost of our built environment?
4: There's a need for for, for carbon data. We're obviously in a, a climate climate emergency, and it doesn't feel as though people are driving us as fast forward as we need to be. Built environment's responsible for about 40% of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, that percentage does change depending on what part you're looking at, but it's around sort of the 40% level.
2: And everybody in the built environment needs to be doing something about about that. E-scooters may help us cut car use, but many users are put off by concerns about their safety. How can scooter manufacturers encourage their more widespread adoption?
1: The whole metric for us is how we maximize the number of joyful miles ridden. Basically, the key thing for us is uh, the scooter market's very early. And, and what matters most is that everyone who's riding a scooter today has a great experience and becomes a massive advocate for the sector people who integrate these vehicles into their lives have an incredible experience and so so making everyone feel safer and making it more approachable and basically eliminating these headlines we keep seeing we're still like we're trying to make sure that there's never a reason for someone to write a scooters are unsafe headline again
2: Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling
3: and I'm Ryan Owen. This is one
2: of 12 episodes originally aired between the 5th and 17th of February 2024, presenting the shortlisted entries for the Engineering Matters Awards.
3: In this episode we're looking at the shortlisted entries in the Net Zero Champion Award category.
2: This category aims to celebrate the work of engineers and organisations as they develop new technologies to eliminate carbon emissions or to predict, measure and report emissions accurately. This is the first of three Net Zero episodes.
3: 3TI are shortlisted for their pop-up mini-solar car park and EV charging hub.
2: The Building Cost Information Service, also known as BCIS, has been shortlisted for the data they have collected in the Built Environment Carbon Database.
3: Bo have been shortlisted for their electric scooter steering mechanism.
0: 3TI stands for Three Technology Infrastructure, and those three technologies are solar, batteries and EV charging. And um, because we're EV charging and because most cars stand around doing nothing for 95% of the time, uh, we decided that quite a good place to charge them would actually be in the car park. So we are not exclusively car parks from a solar point, solar point of view, but um, that, that is our niche.
3: That was Tim Evans, CEO of 3TI. He and his colleagues have pioneered the development of local solar generation for energy hungry facilities.
0: We've built, as a company or or as team members, we've been involved in the two biggest solar car parks in the UK. The largest and probably best known is at Bentley at the car factory in Crewe, where we put uh, canopies over 1,500 parking spaces in the staff car park. And the second biggest in the UK, which is at J.P. Morgan's data centre in Bournemouth, and that covers just about a thousand spaces. The vast majority of the power we generate goes into the factory or the data centre, respectively. And a small but increasing proportion is going into electric vehicle charging as, uh, in those cases, members of staff acquire electric vehicles and uh, need somewhere to charge.
3: As the uptake of EVs has spread across society, the 3TI team realised there was a growing need for cheap accessible charging.
0: Early adopters in EV by and large, were were more affluent people, which means they live in houses with driveways and garages where they can charge at home. But the mass market adoption that's coming and must come, uh, it requires everybody being able to charge. And uh, uh, somewhere in the region 50, 55% of people do not live in houses where they are able to charge. If you're you're in a tower block or a terraced house, uh, you can't run a cable out of the window or across the curb, you've got to go and charge somewhere.
3: By bringing power to where people keep their cars for much of the day, the car park at work, 3TI could help meet this demand. In the right conditions, the panels generated about enough power to charge one car per parking slot. But conditions aren't always right, and the system they were developing would need to account for this.
0: But of course, we were able to boost that system with batteries and store excess power from, you know, from a midday sunshine uh, and indeed from the grid at night so the battery can be charged with cheaper low carbon power at night and then discharged during the day. It's not uh, exclusively solar in that case but by and large the power on the grid at night comes disproportionately from um, hydro and wind so it is still a lower carbon option by, uh, by storing it overnight in a battery.
3: The large projects Tim and his colleagues had worked on required substantial investment and were subject to planning delays.
0: I started the company just under five years ago, and the emphasis was very definitely on large-scale car parks. And five years ago, the EV charging market wasn't as active or, or, or growing as rapidly as it is now. And in order to finance a project, you really needed quantity of electricity, so it take Bentley, for example, I say the vast majority of the power goes into the factory. So um, we we own the hardware, we sell the electricity to Bentley on a 25 or 30 year contract, and that finances the the, uh, project. So that was very much the starting point. The issue with those very big projects is that they require planning permission, they require a new grid connection, uh, the financing takes a while, the property issues need to be resolved, and lease agreements and so on and so forth. Uh, It can easily take two years, certainly 18 months, to get all that lined up. And then, of course, in the early stages of 3TI, we had 12 or 18 months of disruption due to COVID.
3: The need to switch to cleaner transport is urgent. Tim and his team realised that they needed to be able to deliver projects faster.
0: So we were finding that these big projects, which are are exciting and interesting and relatively large capital projects in the sort of three to five million pound window, um, they were taking a long time to develop and and get to um, the point of being able to break ground. Um, And so I was looking at a way of speeding that up and moving the emphasis from big power generation to lots of EV charging.
3: The answer was to modulise their approach.
0: And that's where we came up with this concept of Papilio 3, which uh, you would have seen, which is a containerised or modular EV charging hub. It's designed, design built from a recycled shipping container or a repurposed shipping container. It's a 40-foot container. Uh, it has a canopy on the roof that unfolds, hence the name Papilio, the butterfly. Uh, it, it lands on site. It opens its wings, and you've got instantly 12 charge points. It is connected to the grid for the reasons we've just discussed: nighttime charging and uh, periods of the year when it's not quite so sunny. Uh, but it also has a battery as part of the unit.
3: This allows customers to turn part of their car park into a solar charging facility in a day.
0: So we've we've combined those three technologies of 3TI into a shipping container. And the big benefit is no planning permission, no new grid connection. Financing is very simple because we rent them on a monthly basis. So there's no huge outlay for for a potential customer. And uh, we can, once we get to site, we can actually deploy it in six or eight hours. Uh, including painting white lines and and such like. And uh, once the customer's finished with it uh, or or decides to move on to a big permanent uh, installation, we take it away and move it somewhere else. But my suspicion is that people will have it and keep it because it's, it's neat. It's very straightforward and I think we will actually find people keeping it indefinitely.
3: The Papilio units allow for fast delivery of solar charging at low capital costs to the customer many companies will stop there. But for those with a high demand for solar charging, the Papilio charges can be a step on their way to a more permanent approach.
0: And of course, what it it allows customers to do, and, and there's an awful lot of misinformation, but also a lack of information and understanding in the market. People are buying things and being, more importantly, being sold things that they possibly don't need or aren't right for their particular situation. And the beauty of having a Papilio unit for a few months is that we can put it in there, get the data off it and see how many people are charging, how long are they staying, what charge are they taking and so on and so forth. And if we then decide at a later date to go for a permanent installation, we know exactly what uh, what, it, what equipment they need, what side the battery needs to be, what, you know, what particular charge points they, they should have and so on and so forth. So it's, it's also a means to an end in that respect. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the real-time market research, if you like, for particular customers.
3: Papilio allows companies to get some solar charging fast and then decide on the best way to increase their local generating capacity. And with so much land dedicated to parking cars, this could have a real impact on the UK's path to net zero.
0: If we took the 30,000 car parks and converted just 10% of them to solar, we could take all the coal off the grid. All the existing or remaining coal power generation could be replaced by just 10% of the car parks. If we did 50%, we could get rid of gas and oil as well. So it is quite a staggering figure.
4: There's a need for, for for carbon data. We're obviously in a, a climate climate emergency and it doesn't feel as though um, people are driving us as fast forward as we need to be. Built environment's responsible for about 40% of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, that percentage does change depending on what part you're looking at, but it's around sort of the 40% level. And everybody in the built environment needs
2: to be doing something about about that. That was James Fisk, the CEO of BCIS, also known as the Building Cost Information Service. The BCIS collates and makes available data useful to surveyors, architects, and developers. But in recent years, it's turned its attention not just to financial cost but carbon costs. The old uh, developer analogy
4: is sort of build it, build it cheaply, and flog it on and make a load of money. Well, we've got to change that mindset in the industry that actually. Um, you know, we need to be thinking about the ongoing maintenance replacements and operations responsible for what we're building now. Because once you've built it, you're then living with that thing for the next sort of
2: 60-plus years. BCIS has been working alongside colleagues at the RICS, the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors, on developing ways to account for carbon emissions from the built environment. The RICS has developed a new professional standard, Whole Life Carbon Assessment, which gives surveyors a method for calculating carbon emissions. This has been shortlisted and we'll be looking at the latest revision to the standard in an upcoming episode. But before a surveyor can make these calculations, they need to know the carbon impact of each of the materials they'll use. And they'll want to be able to compare the impact of the asset they are working on with similar assets. The BCIS Built Environment Carbon Database helps them do this in two ways.
4: Yeah. So the uh, the built-in carbon database, as a term, is slightly misleading because there's actually two databases. The first database is 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 a materials database, so a, a manufacturer type type database in terms of you know, uh, carpets, bricks, blocks, etc. etc. Um, uh, and and the second part is. Is what we classify as an asset-level database. Now, by asset, in this case, we mean sort of a project, as in a building or a bridge. Um, you know that that sort of that sort of level. Uh, and and the vision and the ambition for both the parts of the databases are, are are slightly slightly different.
2: This allows architects and engineers to make an initial assessment of an asset's likely carbon impact before looking at materials in detail. So, at the early stage of getting involved in a, in a project, i.e. the
4: feasibility stage, um, we want to arm the industry with some some good data to say that if I built this thing, how much emissions is it likely to be responsible for? Um, not just in its initial construction, but obviously its its ongoing maintenance, replacements and operation throughout the life of that thing. And that's, that's the key part to what we're trying to do here is get the industry to focus on the ongoing emissions not just the here and now and then the materials databases once you get into the real sort of detailed design stage shall i go for this or shall i go for that it's to provide the industry with uh, with an ability to compare different options and and reduce um, reduce sort of emissions hopefully um, by picking things that last longer and have a lower
2: lower emissions the databases have only been live for a few months but it has built the foundations for a comprehensive asset database.
4: Within the asset database, once we've started to get lots of projects pumped through, we should be able to provide the average and benchmark kind of figures for different facility types and different design options and different engineering solutions. Um, uh, But, you know, uh, the the first pass is to get all of the data in one place and start to build up that massive knowledge, and then we can interpret that into into something that's really, really useful for the industry.
2: And the materials database is growing rapidly too, with more than 32,000 materials listed when we interviewed James late in 2023 but this has not been easy to put together.
4: We have found that um, the quality of data within the industry is obviously a bit varied. We think we've got a relatively comprehensive, good coverage of, of, of building materials now, but we don't know that. So step one is pull it, pull all of the data that's available into one place and understand if we've got it uh, or, or, or if we haven't. Step two is then to, to start to work on the consistency of that information. So EPDs obviously our main source of sort of carbon emissions
2: uh, data. EPDs are environmental performance declarations.
4: Unfortunately, what we've found is that the interpretation of that standard does vary uh, depending on who's doing who's doing the EPD. So uh, we've got we've got examples where. Materials are measured differently, um, so, so I, I always use the paint example. You've got somebody reporting the emissions by meter squared coverage of paint. Um, you've, got, um, you've got somebody reporting it in a 5 litre tin. You've got somebody reporting in a 20 litre cup. Um, so that all makes it very, very hard to compare um, one material against against another. Um, So so there's some inconsistencies in the data that we're already seeing that needs to be addressed by the industry.
2: This will take ongoing work, and the data itself is not all that is needed to complete an assessment. This should also consider transport cost and construction operations.
4: So you should take that raw data and then apply it to your project uh, sort of specifics which would be transportation but going one step further it's also um, how you're constructing it so so um, putting those materials together into a construction project can vary depending on which sort of you know solution and and technique you're you're using so again the materials database isn't trying to do that saying this is the raw data for the material and then on
2: top of it you need to model these bits Um, which is done in the uh, calculator. Together, this will allow developers and other stakeholders to accurately account for the carbon impact of their projects. And that is something that is needed around the world, not just in the UK.
4: So there are some countries that have uh, databases already, but there's not many of them. So, you know, France, Germany, um, uh, two two kind of examples. In the US, we've got uh, EC3 um, and Building Transparency, another sort of similar kind of concept to to be CD, I guess, in some respects. Um, But uh, in the main, there isn't anywhere that has this this data. So unsurprisingly, we've already been speaking to a number of international governments who would like to use what we're developing here to support uh, their ambitions as well.
2: Personal e-mobility is seen by many as a key way to reduce fossil fuel use. People replacing their cars with scooters could make a real impact on meeting net zero goals. But many people are put off by the risk of these vehicles. Bo, an e-scooter manufacturer based in the UK, is looking to design scooters that feel safe for all riders. Oscar Morgan explains.
1: The whole metric for us is how we maximise the number of joyful miles ridden. So, so we did a whole program around lightweighting. We actually created both a carbon fiber version of our chassis, so pure carbon fiber, structure of carbon fiber, and a thermoset composite one, uh, a, a thermoplastic composite, sorry. So, so the, the first attempt was, was a thermoset composite, the second attempt was a thermoplastic composite. And we did all of the engineering behind that and found that the, the cost and the sort of, what, what you call the negativities around that weren't necessarily reasonable for the weight benefit. And and actually as we were going through that process simultaneously, we were looking at all of the ride dynamics.
2: And that brought them to the development we're featuring in the awards shortlist. So we were looking at how safe you feel, we were looking at how
1: much you enjoy your ride, how stable you are, and and we made a decision, I guess about 18 months ago, that what Bo would do was we would create the most stable riding, so, so what you might call the most sophisticated ride experience in this whole category. And we've actually done that. It's probably added at a minimum three, maybe four kilos to, to, to the overall weight of the vehicle. So, so we've moved away from being the ultimate lightweight solution uh, towards something that is, from a weight point of view, is normal within the categories.
2: Instead, they're focusing on safety.
1: For us, Safe steer is, is potentially the most important thing that we've developed in, in this category. You've seen the headlines around these products. You've seen everyone talking about how unsafe they are. they small wheels. Uh, and, and it's a lovely innovation insofar as it's, it's come about in a very pure sense. We, we, we were understanding of the geometry of the scooter, just trying to make the most stable riding vehicle from pure geometry. and And through that process, we started to understand dynamics of, for example, why a bicycle is so stable. So, so we thought it was all about wheel gyroscopic stability. But when we started investigating, the engineering process found it's actually more about the geometry of the bike, because as you turn the wheel, uh, the, the head angle means that you're lifting the frame of the bicycle. And, and, and so your weight on the bike is pushing that wheel back to center. And because the wheel on a scooter is a lot smaller, you lose that, which is what then loses that, that inclination for it to always track straight.
2: Bo needed to find a new way to make scooters stable.
1: We were just trying to figure out why this was happening, how we could then recreate that effect on these smaller wheeled vehicles. And when we did, the difference in terms of the steering dynamics and the safety—if you hit a bump or if you hit a pothole or, or anything of that sort—is is so profound. It has the potential, at least, to be the single biggest safety improvement of this vehicle category of anything I've seen. So it's a, it's a really important from pure engineering point of view it's a really important improvement for these vehicles
2: they realized there was a wide range of ways they could help achieve their aims
1: the prototyping process has been through i guess now probably 30 different iterations and they have they have uh varied from like uh iteration one was literally bungee cords from a from a handlebar to a point on the chassis we played around with passive electronics so if you if you, if you effectively short out across a three phase motor, it has a resistance to it. And we were wondering if, if variable resistance could, could uh, basically give you a sort of passive damping. Uh, we've also been uh, working a little bit or with uh, a company based out of Seattle who do a full ele- electronic program. Uh, and where we settled for Bo is a very neat, very simple mechanical assistance. And that's what, we've ended up with a pair, a, a pair of balanced springs and, and that's really nice because it gives you a quasi linear response. So what we didn't want was was something where the more you, uh, the more you twist it, the more it, it, it you, you don't want a changing dynamic as you do that. And by opposing the two springs, you end up with something that's inherently balanced, which is what we wanted.
2: And this will, Oscar says, allow them to grow the market, not just for their own scooters, but by supplying the safe-steer technology to other manufacturers for the entire sector.
1: Basically, the key thing for us is uh, the scooter market is very early. And, and what matters most is that everyone who's riding a scooter today has a great experience and becomes a massive advocate for the sector. People who integrate these vehicles into their lives have an incredible experience. And so, so making everyone feel safer and making it more approachable and basically eliminating these headlines we keep seeing. We are feel like we're trying to make sure that there's never a reason for someone to write a scooters are unsafe headline again.
2: The entrants we've looked at today are all playing an important role in supporting the move to a net-zero economy. Their work will be celebrated at the Engineering Matters award ceremony in London at the end of March. In our next episode in this series, looking at the Engineering Matters award shortlist, we will look at some more entries in the net-zero category. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and produced by Kiri Yarnathan and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and by Rean Owen. Editing by Will North. Series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And our man who judges all that we do is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media and on LinkedIn.